What's up? Hey there. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Shalene Show, where we are talking about your body, weight gain, and the other changes that you're experiencing, whether you're menopausal, perimenopausal, postmenopausal, this whole stage as we start to age over the age of like 35, for some women, doesn't happen until they're in their 40s, but we start to have a decline and fluctuation of our hormones. So for this episode, anytime I say menopausal, please know that I'm talking about perimenopausal. Those people who are kind of in flux haven't actually gone 12 months yet without a period because as you know, without a cycle for 12 months, that means you're officially menopausal or postmenopausal, I guess they say. Anyways, we're talking about all of that and how frustrating it can be to try to take control of your weight, your body, your hair, your skin, all the things. And there's so much conflicting information out there. So today, my guest, today I'm bringing on the show Dr. Mary Claire Haver. She's a board-certified OBGYN. She's a physician, and she is certified in culinary medicine. In other words, medical nutrition. She is the creator of the Galveston Diet, Her work is science-based. Her passion is the science of menopause, the science of aging and inflammation and nutrition and all of the things that they don't teach physicians in school or residency. And hello, a third of the population is battling their way through this stage and there's very little science, very little research and very few experts specifically devoted to this area. Isn't that crazy? Dr. Haver has been married for 25 years. She is the mother of two beautiful girls. She's an OBGYN practicing in Houston, Texas, and she's here with us today. Well, Dr. Haver, thank you so much for joining us today. I think the first question I'd like to ask is, with a degree, with your own medical training, was it enough for you to really understand how to help women through that perimenopausal, menopausal stage, or did you need to do a deep dive on your own? And if so, tell us about that. Sure. And I'm so glad you asked that because I finished my training at the age of 34 and I was nowhere near my own personal perimenopausal journey yet. And at that point, I would have told you I'm fully prepared. I know everything. I've got it going. I made hundreds on all my tests and and I'm good. And then I go out into actual clinical practice and I keep getting the same questions over and over again as my patients were aging and unexplained weight gain change in body composition, why am I feeling this way, decreased libido, I don't understand what's happening to me. And I just felt like I was helpless. And I remember going out to my, you know, bosses at the time who had been in practice like 20 years longer than I had. And for most of it, they would say, just pat her on the knee and tell her to work out more and eat less and, you know, have some wine if she's struggling in other areas and it'll all be okay. And that was about it. And so as my own journey started through my personal perimenopausal and menopausal journey, I realized I'm like a deer in the headlights here. I I don't know anything. I mean, perimenopause was not even discussed in our training programs. And I was a residency program director for about 15 years. There was no education around the nuances of recognizing it, how to diagnose perimenopause, what treatment options were available, nothing. And then for menopause, it was basically... HRT, keep her bones strong, you know, but pray she doesn't get cancer, you know. And so in my generation of training, a lot of docs out there who are trained 20 something years ago just won't even discuss HRT because they have not kept up with the latest research and literature and realize that it's a much safer option than we initially 
thought, you know, after the Women's Health Initiative study was released. That's crazy. So was it really more towards you started entering? So I started entering. I was, my journey started with the symptoms, but I didn't recognize them. You know, the sleep, the sleep disruption, the hot flashes. Like I was going through a grief process when my brother had passed away. So I kind of was thinking it was that. And then the hot flashes started with abandon and the weight gain. I had never struggled. You know, I was very conscientious nutrition wise. I was very conscientious exercise wise. And I'd never really had a hard time outside of pregnancy with my weight. And then all of a sudden, which again, I attributed to poor nutrition during my grieving process. I literally was just stuffing my face with processed carbohydrates, you know, to get through the day. And then when it was time, okay, the grief was better and I was ready to get healthy again and it wasn't working. (laughs) All the tricks and things that I had done for all those years, counting calories, going to the gym, stopped working. And I realized that I sounded just like my patients who had about 85% complained of the same thing. And the only thing that we were taught in training and medical school was calories in, calories out. That's it. Isn't that just crazy? Isn't that just remarkable? So that's when I started diving into science. You know, like I'm missing something. You know, my husband's like, you're so frustrated. It's affecting our family. You're like obsessively weighing yourself. You're doing all these things. He's like, you're a smart girl. Figure this out. And I took that as a challenge. Sure. What was the first thing that for you that you were like, Oh, wait a second. Aha. So I worked at a very large research institution, you know, that had, and I had a very robust private practice through the university. So I was delivering PhDs and, you know, nurses and, you know, lots of healthcare professionals who we all worked for the same university. And so I'd become friendly with a lot of them. So I had like PhD nutritionists who were, you know, my age. And so I would just call them up and like, what is going on? You know, all my patients are campaigning of this. And they said, you know, there is a lot going on and we have to connect the dots here because no one's paying for this research right now. And so we know inflammation levels are going up. We know that as the chronic levels of inflammation increase, we are seeing, you know, dramatic differences in leptin and ghrelin and insulin and cortisol and all of the hormones that control where and how you store fat. Now we're going to layer on rapidly declining yet wildly fluctuating estrogen levels, androgen levels, you know, progesterone levels. And that all is just feeding into this massive, you can count on a woman to change her body composition through perimenopause and into menopause. It's almost a hundred percent guarantee that Mm. where and how she stores fat will change. Even if she doesn't have a hot flash. You know, just even you saying that I think is going to really help some women to understand like I'm normal. I'm not broken. This is part of the process. And so for you, you start realizing these things and you're talking to women who I assume are are a little bit older than you too. Some older, some. So at this point I was in my late forties. So, you know, I had been, when you start out in OBGYN, you tend to have younger patients who come to you because they're having babies or getting ready to get pregnant. And then as your practice matures and you mature, your patients age along with you is kind of how it works, you know, for most of us. And so I was on this journey with these patients (laughs) myself. And also trying to solve the problem for yourself and not just your, your patients. What was one of the first things you noticed for yourself? Like this makes a difference. So I, you know, started reading everything I could get my hands on about inflammation, hormone changes, you know, weight gain, aging women. And I just kept seeing these reoccurring themes of chronic inflammation, chronic inflammation, chronic inflammation. So like, what can we do to decrease chronic inflammation, not acute, like when you have a cold or a virus or you twist your ankle, you know, like this chronic low-lying inflammation. 
And almost everything pointed to nutrition, whereas so many of us get locked into this calories in, calories out mindset without paying attention to real nutrition. I said, well, what if I stopped counting calories? What if we just threw calories out of the window, which made me nervous because that's all I was taught. But what if I just focused on my nutrition? What can I do to lower inflammation? And then that took me into the studies on intermittent fasting, the studies on what really an anti-inflammatory nutritional profile can look like. And then on the mindset part of it, of how so many of us were afraid of fat. I have like PhD articles on the fear of fat, of eating fatty, you know, fat, healthy, you know, really looking at the composition of food and why, you know, you can't just lump all carbohydrates together or fats together, you know, like everything has pros and cons and negatives and positives. And you just, you know, you have to eat a balance, the balance to, to really get the peak nutrition out of everything. And so I just, this form, this formula popped up into my head and I was like, okay, let me start with this fasting thing, which I thought was a fad. You know, I'd heard about it. Eh, I want to eat my breakfast. I don't want to skip. You know, I work out in the morning. This is never going to work for me. But then I ran across Mark Matson from the National Institutes of Health, and he's just retired, but he was a PhD researcher. This guy never probably made, you know, more than a teacher. <laughs> I mean, but he was just this incredible icon in the world of neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's and dementia. And his studies on using fasting as a way to lower inflammation, especially neuroinflammation, absolutely floored me. And so going down that rabbit hole made me realize fasting may not be a great thing for weight loss because you can eat a lot of terrible things in your eating window. But man, there are some incredible health benefits you know, the, the fasting state mimic, you know, causes the body to cells like at a, at a DNA level, RNA level to undergo changes that make them more resilient and less, imper you know, impervious to disease. It makes us healthier. And I was like, let me play around with this and see what happens. So I started with fasting. Then I started looking at nutrients, nutrition, anti-inflammatory nutrition, you know, and then I started working on the mindset piece for, for and then decided to share it with my patients and my girlfriends. And I just grew from there. And you've just exploded on social media. Shocking. Yeah, it's fun. I love it. I, I really do. So my audience has submitted questions. And if it's okay, I'd love to throw these your way. There's a whole bunch of them. I'm not sure how many we can get through, but we can start. Sure. Okay. I'd love to. And I picked the ones that I kept getting kind of the same questions over and over. So they're, I think, representative of more than just the person who's asking the question. So this person said, since I turned 45, I haven't gained much weight, but I am thicker around the middle. What is going on? Sure. So one of the things that we notice in perimenopause that is nearly universal, and especially those last two years before your period stop, is a change in body composition. And I do a lot of education around subcutaneous fat versus visceral fat. So when people are feeling thicker around the middle, it's usually due to a change of how and where your body deposits fat, where it used to be for most of us, not all, around the hips and thighs. And then suddenly you're gaining weight in your midsection where you never had before. This is 100% hormone related. And the visceral fat deposition is 
inside the abdomen. It wraps around our omentum. Well, it's part of the omentum. It increases the fat around the small and large intestine, the stomach, the liver, all the internal organs. This fat is metabolically different than subcutaneous fat and responds very differently. Subcutaneous fat actually does well with calories in, calories out, as most of us in our 20s and 30s can tell you. Visceral fat is an inflammatory organ. It pumps out cytokines and leads to more inflammation. The higher those levels of chronic inflammation, the higher the risk of seven of the top 10 causes of chronic disease, the higher your leptin resistance is, your insulin resistance is, you end up in this very negative feedback cycle that's constantly, you know, everything is feeding into you getting more visceral fat deposition, increasing inflammation, et cetera. From a menopause standpoint, when we have our estrogen levels declining over time, our liver stops producing as much steroid hormone binding globulin. And this is a protein produced in the liver. It's normal. We need it. That binds our sex hormones and renders them inactive. It's just like a car. They float around the bloodstream in. And then it releases them. They become active. They do their job. And then they disintegrate. When our SHBG levels decline, then the activity of certain of all of our sex hormones increases. So your androgens, which are fairly at steady state for women, there's a little bit of a decline, but not, you know, increase in activity. And one of the top drivers of visceral fat is increasing activity of our androgen levels, our testosterone and interesting dione levels will be help, very helpful in driving fat to the abdomen. So that is one of the things we see, of course, increasing insulin levels will also drive fat to the viscera as well. Well, that makes sense because, you know, so many women as we're perimenopausal, menopausal, I wish there was a word that represented like both those things because they're so long. And I'm searching for it myself because I, I, so many women are, well, I'm postmenopausal. What about me? And I'm like, when I say menopausal, I mean everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Okay, so let's just use that for the rest of our time together. Wherever you are in your journey. <laughs> yeah, so so many women talk about, again, the thickness, feeling thicker, but also that's not just going to change your body fat composition, but it's going to change your body composition, just the way your clothes fit and the way you look. And, and so much of our mindset, frankly, is tied to our image, our body image. And I know you're a big fan of intermittent fasting, so I want to get to this next question. This person says, I've done intermittent, in, intermittent fasting for years. I lost about 10 pounds in my early 40s. I recently had my hormone levels checked, and I learned that my cortisol is through the roof. I've since gained 15 pounds. I've been tracking my calories consistently. I'm staying in or under my macros. I can't seem to drop the weight. And my doctor says that I should not be doing intermittent fasting but I'm afraid that I may gain even more weight. And I assume that, that her doctor is saying that because her cortisol levels are high. If her cortisol levels are through the roof, then she has probably Cushing's disease or Cushing's syndrome. And this is something that an endocrinologist needs to get involved in your care. They need to do a deeper dive into your labs and see where this, this the production of cortisol is coming from and what you can do to decrease it so that those levels go down. Cortisol will also change your body composition and drive fat to the abdomen. Look at anyone with serious Cushing's disease. You know, they have a big abdomen. They have the hump on the back of their neck. Those are extreme cases. This is different than people who live under chronic stress and their cortisol levels are mildly elevated. She said through the roof. So I'm assuming she has some form of Cushing's disease or syndrome and that needs a specialist as soon as possible. Is there any truth to the belief that certain stages of your stress level, like especially for women who maybe have adrenal fatigue or are chronically stressed, chronically 
feeling fatigue, maybe not Cushing's disease, but they've been doing intermittent fasting for many, many years and their body's just kind of adapted to it. What approach would you suggest for that woman? So if her overall cortisol levels aren't showing a disease state, you know, and they're just mildly elevated, you know, the best way to get those cortisol level lowered is going to be changing your environment as much as possible. You know, the biggest thing that we can see that is going to lower, you know, the cortisol levels associated with chronic stress is going to be the very basic things, meditation, self-care, whatever that looks like for you. For some of my students, it's prayer. For some, it is, you know, meditation. For some, it's a bike ride. For some, it's a glass of wine for, you know, but like what I see in our generation is we are putting everything else consistently before our own needs. You know, we have to take care of our, our partners, our children, our pets, our, you know, all the things. And, and so we come in a very distant last. And when you layer on the stress your body's going in through in perimenopause and menopause, I feel like in their thirties before this, these changes start hitting, everyone is functioning at, there's no room for error. You know, we are overscheduled, overhyped, over everything. We're doing okay. And now we're going to layer on these, the tsunami of hormone changes and expect, <laughs> you fully expect to be able to yeah. do exactly what you're doing and no changes in your body. And that is just not the truth. And so, yeah, one of the things I always preach is you got to put your own oxygen mask on first. Your kids can make their own dinner. You know, well, speaking of the awareness of our, our medical professionals and, you know, certainly I don't want to make sweeping generalities, but do you think that a woman who's really struggling in this way and cannot figure out what's going on that just you need to see an endocrinologist? You know, it's tough. Everybody assumes doctors are all trained the same. They all care about the same thing. They have different specialties and Sure. If you need a cardiothoracic surgery, you know, if you need a technician to do a surgical procedure, that's one thing. But by and large, what I have found, and and I really, it's my experience on social media, which is teaching me more and more about this, that the feedback I am getting from followers of their experiences behind those closed doors with their practitioners, I am shocked. I mean, the just being dismissed, their symptoms being minimized, their, you know, and so part of what I do on social media is teach patients how to advocate for themselves. You know, here are the things to talk about. Here's the list of symptoms that if, if you have, you need to say and have them document in your chart so you can get these lab tests done. And so, you know, I, myself, not every OBGYN is competent to do menopause care. We don't have a lot of training. It really takes someone special. So what I've been able to do for my followers and students is we are creating a database of testimonials from patients who love their menopause provider because you can't Google these things anymore and get reliable information. That's amazing. You're right. Okay. So l before we get to that, what's the website? Oh, so if you go to my website, which is galvestondiet.com or, or if you follow me on TikTok or on Instagram, you go to the link in bio, there's a very clear button you can press for the doctor referral system. And it's all, no one pays me to be on it. It is absolutely free. I, even people in my own neighborhood, I don't care if you don't come to me. It's just personal testimonials from our followers who want to help a sister out and say, look, this person gave me great care, listened to me, did the labs, did all the things. And I'm feeling so much better. I'm also on that list are the North American Menopause Society doctors who have bothered to go and get certified in NAMS. So people were begging me, begging me for recommendations. And I'm like, what can I do? Oh, that's great. It's brilliant. 
And we'll put the links to that in our show notes too, so you guys can find it very easily. Because of your specialty and your understanding of nutrition, medical nutrition, what are your thoughts with regard to the keto diet for women in the stage or who have been on a keto diet long-term? We know its popularity kind of took stronghold, I would say, probably last seven, eight years ago and, and continues today. But some, any of your thoughts there? So I do have a degree in culinary medicine, which is medicine and nutrition together. And so we looked a lot at, at keto diet and, you know, keto comes in many forms, shape. I mean, when physicians says keto, we mean ketosis. It's just a process of a byproduct of what happens when your body burns fat for fuel. But the what's happened in social media, what's happened in popular culture, keto has become this, you know, phenomena and you know, keto tends to be the way most people do it, weight loss at any cost. And long-term mm. data is now coming out that it's really the way most people do it. It's not sustainable. They have a big bounce back, weight gain, and about 50% of the of what they lose is muscle as well as fat. And so yeah. the last thing a woman at our age needs to be doing is losing muscle. So not Every way that people practice keto is as unhealthy or sustainable. You know, there's a problem with fiber. There's a problem with nutrient. Anytime we restrict, there's problems. We're meant to kind of be yeah. eating everything. Yeah. And so I kind of talk about keto being a weight loss at any cost. Like if you're trying to get into a wedding dress or get into a, you know, you're going to a reunion, you want to look good, you can lose five, 10 pounds really quickly and, and fit into that dress. But when I have patients come to my clinic, we are talking about 20 years from now, you lifting a grandchild, you getting off the toilet without help, you being as healthy as possible. And so keto has a hard time fitting into that model mm -hmm. the way most people would try to do keto. You know, we are mm -hmm. not here for quick weight loss. I'm not. I am here for your best health for the rest of your life so that you live your next 20, 30 years as full as you possibly can. And we do yeah. a lot of talk around, what does your mom look like? <laughs> what does your dad look like? Do you want yeah. their lives? Oh, okay, so let's yeah. figure out how we're going to get you the goals you want in the next 20 years. Utilizing nutrition. People are like <laughs> shocked into taking action. Okay, so new habit alert. Now when I'm recording my podcast, that's what I'm using as my trigger to remind me to have my greens. So what I'm drinking right now contains ashwagandha, moringa, spirulina, chlorella, coconut water, wheatgrass, red beet, matcha green tea, turmeric, lemon, and prebiotic powder. There's no mess. There's no blending. There's no food processing. It's a powdered form, 100% organic. I put one scoop of Organifi greens powder into a big glass of sparkling ice. I stir it up. It tastes so refreshing. I'm not going to lie. I had a packet of stevia because I like it super sweet. It's delicious. It's actually very refreshing. The superfoods that they pack into this drink are specifically designed to help you reduce your cortisol levels. Now, if you're stressed, you can improve your cortisol levels by having a green juice every day. The Organifi Greens drink is it's very tasty. There is an acquired taste to it. It does have a little bit of a greens taste, a little bit of a minty taste. But if you don't love Organifi Greens, try another one of Organifi's products. I drink Organifi Pure mixed with Organifi Immunity every morning in my water bottle. That's for my immune system and my brain health. And I'm now having a greens drink in the afternoon. I want you to try the amazing line of Organifi products. They're all 100% organic. They're my favorites. 
They're convenient. They're delicious. So check it out. You get 20% off when you go to Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash Shaleen. It's Organifi with an I dot com forward slash Shaleen for 20% off. Check out their line of products. And if you know that you could use more greens and you want a tasty, delicious alternative to pulling out the blender, try the Organifi greens juice. That's Organifi.com forward slash Shaleen. Well, one of the things I love is that you do recommend that people download an app that helps them to track, but you don't suggest tracking what most people would suggest, which is calories and or macros. You have four other things that you suggest women track. Tell us about those four. So I did a challenge. I just had this wild hair of like, you know, I need something concrete that people can track outside of calories and outside of macros. And I thought, what would be four nutrients across the spectrum that would be fairly easy to track? And by choosing foods rich in these things, they're probably going to hit all of the, check all of the boxes for most nutrition. So I know that most women and most Americans are deficient in in fiber and fiber Mm -hmm. has so many health benefits. Mm. And it lowers your insulin levels. It lowers your glucose levels. It, you know, keeps you full longer. It does lots of great stuff for your gastrointestinal tract. It feeds the gut microbiota. So I'm like, okay, fiber definitely was one. It's always one of my top. The other is omega-3 fatty acids. So, mm-hmm. you know, in our West typical Western diet, we get way too much omega-6 fatty acid. Omega-6 is an essential fatty acid. We need it. But we are getting about 20 times more than we should because of the the way foods are processed with corn oil, et cetera, and, you know, all the processed foods in bags and boxes. So we try to track omega-3. The third thing is vitamin D. So -hmm. again, huge deficiencies. So the general population is about 43% are deficient of Americans. But when you look at a woman in perimenopause and menopause, that approaches 85%. When you add on someone of color, the more melanin you have, the less conversion you have from the sun in your skin. These people are approaching 100% vitamin D deficiency. So that is one I have people track. And it's more of an exercise in seeing can you, and then magnesium is the last. Okay. Okay. And so those are the top four. I'll repeat them for your followers. Magnesium, vitamin D, fiber, and omega-3 fatty acids. And I have people just eat healthy, whatever you think is healthy for a week, track it. Then the next week, try to use food, not supplements, to raise those levels above 100%. Wow. Not only will you probably lose weight, but you will feel amazing. (laughs) So that you you probably knew that that was going to be my follow-up question. I'm like, oh, omega-3s, I got a supplement for that. Vitamin D, I got a supplement for that. Magnesium, I got a, you know. So- Everyone's like, whoa, wait, I already supplement. I'm like, I'm not talking about supplementation. If you are supplementing, keep taking them. But using, you know, at one of the top things we learn in my nutrition, you know, studies, nutrition should come from food. We only supplement gaps or where you have an allergy or you're an intolerance or you can't get, you know, there's there's always reasons why we have gaps in our nutrition. But fighting to use food to to cover your bases as much as possible. And it's that exercise and really making people think about what they're putting in their body has been the most success for my students. Well, you know, you just mentioned like looking at your parents, which leads me to a a question I got that was pretty funny. It said, how is it that overnight I got my mother's arms? Every other part of my body is the same, but my arms feel like they've ballooned overnight. What's going on? So one, I, what I think is happening and I, you know, without doing measurements or labs or anything, it's hard to tell, but women are, you know, we try, our bodies fight to lose muscle 
in perimenopause and menopause. And if we are not ensuring we're getting enough protein and doing resistance training on a regular basis, that we will lose muscle. And in, there's a genetic component as well. You know, some people lose it more in certain places. And so it is something you really have to focus on to keep those muscles strong. If you just keep doing everything you've ever done in your 30s through your 40s and 50s, you will lose probably 10, maybe 15% of your muscle mass through that time period. And it is dramatic. Then all of a sudden you look in the mirror and you're, you know, flapping your arm up and down because you there's no muscle there. Mm-hmm. And I would assume that when you're saying like you're just doing everything that you were doing, now you really need to focus more I guess, put a greater priority on your strength training. Is that your suggestion? Yes, I agree. I mean, I'm not trying to undersell cardio. I think it's important. It's great for heart health. But women in our generation tend to be scared of, of resistance training. They don't know what to do with weights. They, you know, aren't really focusing. So many of my patients come in and they're like, I walk, I walk, I walk, I walk the dog. I, walk. I mean, these are all great exercises, but there's four things. When you look at osteoporosis data and sarcopenia data, it's always resistance training, cardio, balance, and stretching. Those four have got to be a regular part of your weekly routine to stay as functional as possible. You know, and so let's talk about prioritizing exercise. When you say those four things, that's a lot. It's a lot. You know, I say to my friends, like, it takes so much time to maintain ourselves as women in general, right? Like it's, We don't just get to jump in the shower, jump out, put on the same black t-shirt, black shorts, and we're good to go. Like there's so much maintenance in being a woman. And I find that the older I get, like the longer all of this takes and the more maintenance it requires. And so when we think about those four things that we have to do, it's like, oh, I I don't have the time. I don't have the energy, but we still need to do that. So if we were going to prioritize the length of time, would it be your recommendation that women maybe cut back on the cardio and prioritize the strength training? So I, fortunately, when I can say in general, I, you know, in my patients in clinic, I have a body scanner so I can tell them how much muscle they have, where it is and what they need to focus on. But in general, three days a week of something cardiovascular of your choice, whatever makes you happy, whatever floats your boat, as long as you're moving your body. And I give them heart rate zones, you know, kind of that 60 to 70% of their max. And I give them formulas to figure that out. And then at least two days of resistance training, 20, 30 minutes, it does not have to be that long, but always stretch and balance, you know, so throw in a yoga class or some Pilates or just, you know, five, 10 minutes of stretching to keep, you know, the, because we're sitting so much more now at this age that our muscles are shortening and it's going to pay, you know, you're going to feel it. Yeah. Okay. So got this one so many times. It's not even funny. And I'm sure you've heard it a million times in your practice. I'm menopausal. I've tried everything from exercising more, under eating, eating more, keto, intermittent fasting. I can't lose a pound. My doctor says that there are no underlying medical issues other than the fact my metabolism is just slower. Help. So, you know, I've heard that for years and I absolutely understand that sentiment. What is happening is, and there's been metabolic studies done, metabolism is actually not dropping the way that we measure metabolism. It doesn't drop until our 80s or 90s. What is happening is insulin, leptin, cortisol, and ghrelin are changing. Those hormones that control hunger, satiety, and where and how you store fat, as well as estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. So those are the things that are changing on, you know, and you're not changing with it. 
to try to maximize those hormones to work for you. And, you know, I talk to our students about here are some very concrete things you can do to make leptin and ghrelin work for you. Making sure you're getting like very common thing that pe- women are not thinking about is like making sure you're getting enough protein throughout the day. And so most women, the way we typically eat is that they will have something very low protein for breakfast, some kind of an oatmeal, you know, with or toast or something and lunch, they'll have maybe a little salad, very little protein on the side, and they kind of stack their protein at dinner. And what happens is, you know, those receptors in the stomach and the, and the small intestine are looking for that protein. And when they don't get it, you get hungrier. You don't feel as full. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, very, very easy thing to fix is I, Tell people, you know, you need this much protein throughout the day to maintain your muscle mass, okay? And that's a formula based on height, weight, you know, and their ratio and metabolism. They're based on metabolic rate. And so so we get that number. I'm like, don't save it up for at night. You've got to stretch this out and divide it as equally as possible throughout all your meals and snacks throughout the day in order to get these hormones working for you again, because they're not, if they're coming in with those complaints. So the woman who isn't, experiencing signs of menopause. In other words, she's not getting hot flashes. She's not, you know, I don't don't know if my skin's, like she's not having a lot of symptoms. She's not complaining of those things. She's like, yeah, I'm feeling different. Mm -hmm. That's about 15% of women will not have the classic signs, easily recognizable signs. Okay. So, but yet, you know, she's entering that stage of her life. And let's say that she does some testing and finds out that she's deficient in many of these areas or fluctuating, et cetera. Does that woman, do you recommend that that woman also consider hormone replacement therapy or is she like, well, I'm, I'm not symptomatic, so I'm just going to go with what's happening? So that is a great question. I'm so glad you asked because there's emerging data coming out that is showing that women who start hormone support early, perimenopause, and continue it through the first 10 years at least of menopause have a lower all-cause mortality. They have a lower overall chance of death. They have a lower chance of death from cancer, and they have a lower chance of death from cardiovascular disease. She deserves a conversation. It is up to her to make the decision, but I think it is malpractice and a huge (laughs) disservice if she does not at least get the option. She deserves the conversation to know those facts. I'm giggling because I can sense your passion. I can really feel that like this is a frustration for you. Like you're fighting for us. I love it. And I know you, you know, Dr. Kelly Casperson. I don't know if Mm -hmm. it's through social or whatever, but she's a regular on our show. We absolutely freaking love her. I cannot tell you. She and I are the same person. Like we just, (laughs) I love her. She and I have been friends for a long time. We've fought to fight. Oh, really? We've watched each other grow and we've just been each other's cheerleaders. Oh, that's so cool. And I just adore her. She's comes, you know, we, I have VIP groups and whatnot in, in amongst our students. She comes in and does her incredible teaching around sexual function. And yes. I've just, I've learned so much from her and not yeah. from my OBGYN textbooks about female sexual function. And I just think she's a goddess. Yeah. I can't wait for her book to come out. Yeah, me too. And, you know, again, this community loves her. And so it makes sense that, you know, you guys are kind of on that same wavelength and, and, I guess what I'm curious about is why do we hear so many experts telling women not to mess with hormone replacement therapies or to do as little as possible for as short a period of time as possible? So these are practitioners who have not kept up with the latest data and information. (laughs) They have basically been trapped into their training 
back in 20 something years ago, had I not cared about doing a deeper dive or rereading studies or looking at the newest, you know, and here's the other problem, at least in OBGYN, we, I'm board certified, super proud of it. You know, I do it every year. We, to maintain our certification, we read articles that are presented to us by the American College of OBGYN. And then we answer questions. It's like little quizzes at the end of each article to make sure we actually read them. And we have about 25, 30 that we have to do over the course of a year. I love it. It's amazing. Over the last three years, I went back and looked on how many of those articles covered anything to do with menopause. And there were none, not one, not one in three years. And so lots of stuff, important things on, you know, over 60% are on obstetrics, high and high risk and regular obstetrics, office practice, like how to put an IUD or what's the latest on, you know, vulval vaginal dysplasia or, you know, cancer and pediatrics and gen oncology, all important topics. I am not negating the fact that these are things, but one third of women in the world are in perimenopause and menopause, a third of the population, you know, and no one seems to know what's happening and we're not promoting more data to come out. We're not requiring the doctors who are supposed to be taking care of them, their first line to keep up with the latest data and information. It's kind of shameful. It really is. You know, I caught a TikTok live of yours. And that's when I originally reached out. By the way, I'm trying to get in touch with you. Now I know what people feel like when they try to get in touch with me. And there's a gatekeeper, you know, because I'm like, trying all these different places. And they're like, thank you so much for your message. I'm like, oh, this is why people get angry with me when they're like, I sent you 19 messages, and you didn't reply to any of them. But yes, I mean, you guess you have over a million followers. Yeah, with millions of followers. <laughs> it's so crazy. I know you just People are like, did you get my DM? I'm like, I, I couldn't. There's no way I could get through a fraction. No so way. anyways, my question to you or the thing that I, I wanted to mention is that when I caught that TikTok live, you were going over and I'm catching you off guard with this question. So forgive me if, if you need to look at your notes or look this up, but you were going over, I think it was like six different reasons why a woman might have unexplained waking or she was going to... It was a study. I think it was a study. Women who had, were just unable to lose the weight because for a variety of reasons, like they might have had thyroid disease or so there was like a variety of reasons why a woman, other than the fact that she's just not trying hard enough. Mm -hmm. Do you recall? So kind of, I do a lot of TikTok lives. So it could be any number of things. First, we look at the endocrine system. So when I'm doing routine blood work, on a patient, I'm going to do a full thyroid panel because 10% of women will have hypothyroidism, which is a huge mm -hmm. cause of unexplained weight gain. Secondly, it could be something to do with, like we talked about a little bit earlier, with her cortisol levels. So if she's throwing symptoms at me in her history that make me want to get more in depth on laboratory testing, I will do that for her or get her mm -hmm. referral to, to an endocrinologist for that. Another is sarcopenia. They, she's losing so much muscle mass that her basal metabolic rate is dropping mm. and she just cannot, and she's not changing her caloric intake or her exercise levels. So, you know, she's just not burning as many calories at rest, even though her base metabolism is the same. Her muscle mass is decreasing. So those are yeah. kind of the top three that I go with. The fourth is the, the body composition change. If we start looking at waist hip ratios, and, and that's an easy thing you can do at home. Actually, the waist hip ratio is a more reliable 
way to determine someone's health risks than your weight or your BMI, because it does, doesn't, you know, the weight and BMI don't take into account muscle mass. So I will have mm. patients who come in who have an absolutely normal BMI and I scan them and they have, you know, 80 percentile for muscle, but 130 percentile for fat. They just, they mm. weigh a good weight, but they have tremendous amount of visceral fat. Their inflammation markers are elevated. They are not healthy, even though their BMI is great. Flip that around. I'll have a patient who has a high BMI, but she's got 130% of muscle mass. She's like amazing. Mm. She looks like you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, beautiful muscle structure, so healthy, everything pointed, but her whole life, she goes into the doctor's office and they're telling her to lose weight, you know, because most doctors and insurance won't cover these scans. You know, when you say the waist to hip ratio, that is something that I've always like been curious about because, Mm -hmm. you know, there are certain people who just have a tiny little waist and a big bottom. And I'm not talking about the Kardashians. And then there are those of us who are like square, you know what I mean? And there's like no waist. So I've always wondered like, so, you know, if I've been square all my life and the ratio is the same. So I tell people, there's definitely people who have big, their abdominals or like their lap, you know, not the rectus, but the uh, obliques obliques Uh are uh very well developed and some of that could be genetic. So they're going to look a little wider, but for us, for me, it's more looking at trends. And, you know, when you start on this nutrition change program, we're tracking not only your weight, but I'm asking them to track their waist hip ratio. So as a starting point, so for a woman, you want to measure the smallest part of your waist, the widest part of your hips and something that 0.85 is kind of the cutoff. So less than 0.85. And I know all your followers are going to run out and grab their tape measures. Yeah. It's considered to be a sign of better health than someone who is 8.85 or larger. Greater than one is usually statistically significant for you have a visceral fat that this needs to be addressed as soon as possible. Mm, mm. Yeah, that visceral fat is a problem. Now, first thing in the morning, don't do it when you're bloated. (laughs) You know, don't do it right after surgery. So of course, you know, there are people like, my waist grows by the end of the day. I'm like, do it first thing in the morning when it's nice and flat and go from there. Super helpful. Well, where can people who are interested in doing your program and learning more about your the structure that you provide to help women specifically in this stage, where can they learn more? So we have a website at galvestondiet.com, www.galvestondiet.com. We are Instagram at The Galveston Diet, on Facebook at The Galveston Diet, TikTok, I'm Dr. Mary Claire. I'm really, we are kind of transitioning more into a menopausal database. I just feel like my gift is educating and I want to be a leader in this space of educating women and arming them with information so that they can have more informed decisions with their healthcare providers. And so we've got tons of resources on our website and our blogs. Of course, we have our nutrition program. Everybody's welcome to go check that out. But we're so much more than than just a diet. You know, I really want to be a safe place for women and help them navigate this change as healthy as possible. Yeah. Well, thank you for the work that you do. I really do appreciate you. And all of those links will be in our show notes because I love following your stuff on social media. It's absolutely fantastic. And I've loved having you as a guest here today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to make sure you're subscribed and following along. The Shalene Show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most every podcast app. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star review and tell us specifically what you enjoyed. The Shaleen Show was released every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. For Tuesdays and Thursdays, be sure to follow and subscribe to Shaleen's other podcast, Build Your Tribe, which she co-hosts with her son, Brock Johnson. It's all about business and marketing, and it's devoted to helping you make more money and live more life. If you'd like more of Shaleen with more personal content, and I mean personal content, be sure to check out her Patreon at patreon.com forward slash The Shaleen Show. Links to anything referenced in today's episode, as well as show sponsors and other podcasts, can be found below in our show notes.